disciples, we're to use wealth we have to prepare for our eternal future. Jesus said the way we do that is not by being dishonest, not like the manager in Jesus' story. As Christians, we use our wealth shrewdly when we use it for God's kingdom, rather than hoarding it for ourselves, rather than seeing it as ours to do what we want with. That's what it means for a disciple of Jesus to be shrewd or smart in the way we handle our wealth. Everything we have belongs to God. And we are wise if we remember that it belongs to God. That was last week. And our passage this week builds on what we heard last week. Continuing in Luke chapter 16, we find another of Jesus' stories. And Jesus uses the story to teach us about the challenge of obedience. If you're using a church Bible and you haven't already found the passage, you'll find Luke 16 in page 1050. Luke 16, beginning at verse 14, and I'll read to the end of the chapter. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, 
They will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. This is God's word. And this passage breaks into two sections. First, we're introduced to some religious rebels. And then Jesus tells us a story about the man who didn't listen. So first of all, in verses 14 to 18, religious rebels. Chapter 16, verse 1, told us Jesus was speaking to his disciples. But now we find out that the Pharisees have been listening too. And what we find in verse 14 is their reaction to Jesus' teaching about money. His closing words in verse 13 were, you cannot serve both God and money. And then Luke tells us in verse 14, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. Why exactly were they sneering at him? Literally, the text says they were turning up their noses at him. They were publicly showing contempt for Jesus. Why? Well, Luke tells us that they loved money. But Jesus has just announced that the person who loves money cannot also love God. The Pharisees disagree. And they don't want the crowds to accept Jesus' teaching. Because if they do, the Pharisees are going to lose their reputation for being super holy. They're going to be shown up as people who don't truly love God at all. But rather than arguing with Jesus, they try to discredit him. They sneer at him. They're implying he has no authority to make pronouncements like this. He doesn't speak for God. The Pharisees are hoping that the crowds will follow their lead. They will disregard what Jesus says. And then the Pharisees can go on serving money and still be seen as people who serve God. But Jesus says to them in verse 15, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. Jesus made the same accusation back in chapter 11. The Pharisees are happy if the crowds see them as wise and holy. They don't care about actually being wise and holy. The word Jesus has used for them several times already is hypocrites. And here Jesus says to them, you're concerned about the wrong thing. Worry about what God values, not what society values. Yes, society values outward appearances. You can get a reputation in society by being holy on the outside. But that kind of religion, Jesus says, stinks to God. It is detestable to God. God values hearts devoted to him. So Jesus is accusing these outwardly religious Pharisees of being rebels against God. However upright they look on the outside. They're serving money while appearing to serve God. And their hypocrisy is detestable to God. Remember what the Pharisees have just been doing. They've been sneering at Jesus, turning up their noses at him. They're denying that Jesus has any authority. 
Their attitude is, he can say all he wants about how we should use our money. He doesn't speak with God's authority. I think that's what Jesus is responding to when he says in verse 16, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. I think Jesus is making two points in these two verses. First, in verse 16, Jesus is saying that he's bringing in a new era. But second, in verse 17, he says that his message is not contradicting the Old Testament. His message is in line with God's word in the Old Testament. To sneer at Jesus' teaching is to sneer at the teaching of the Old Testament. Look first at verse 16. The law and the prophets are what we know today as the Old Testament. We've often noticed that the Old Testament points forward. It makes promises. It gives foreshadowings about what God is going to do. It promises a savior. It promises new hearts for God's people and many other things. And here Jesus says those promises and foreshadowings were proclaimed until John. He means John the Baptist. When John came, a new message began to be proclaimed. Back in chapter 3, we were told John preached the good news to the people. The good news was that the time of promises and foreshadowings was over. Now was the time for fulfillment. Those promises were going to become reality. And in his own ministry, Jesus took up and developed John's message of good news. We've heard it over recent weeks. Sinners can come into God's kingdom. So in verse 16, he says, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached. Then the NIV reads, and everyone is forcing his way into it. That's probably better translated as, all are being urged insistently to come into it. That's what Jesus has been doing. Urging the crowds to come to God's banquet. A new era has dawned. So it might seem then that Jesus believes he's come to scrap the law and the prophets. The Old Testament might have been useful at the time, but it was misguided. And now Jesus is correcting the Old Testament. It might seem that way, but that's not the case. The NIV has left out a word in verse 17. In the NIV, the verse begins, it is easier. The original contains a word that can be translated but or and. It should be translated but here. So verse 16 has said, the Old Testament pointed forward. A new day arrived when John came. Now the good news is being preached. Everyone is being urged into the kingdom. But it is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Jesus is saying, yes, this is a new day. It's a new era of salvation. But that doesn't mean I'm contradicting the Old Testament. In fact, I'm fulfilling what the Old Testament pointed to. The God who gives this good news of the kingdom is the same God who gave the law and the prophets. 
the same mind and will that lie behind the Old Testament also lie behind my preaching, Jesus says. So, he says to the Pharisees, if you sneer at me and my words, then you're sneering at the Old Testament too. And sure enough, if we go back to the Old Testament, it does agree with everything Jesus has said about money. We could list plenty of examples. Let me just give you a couple. In the book of Micah, God says, He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Or in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 15, If there is a poor man among your brothers in any of the towns of the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your poor brother. Rather, be open-hearted and freely lend him whatever he needs. Further down in the same chapter, God says, There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed towards your brothers and toward the poor and needy in your land. The Old Testament agrees with Jesus. Those who truly belong to God will be generous with what God gives them. The Pharisees have been trying to publicly discredit Jesus. But here he's publicly turning the tables on them. They are not the upholders of God's law that they're cracked up to be. They aren't just rebelling against Jesus' words, they're in rebellion against the Old Testament as well. And that's why verse 18 is here in the text. Jesus says, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. In the Old Testament book of Malachi, God says, I hate divorce. But the Pharisees had made divorce easy. For example, they allowed a man to divorce his wife if she was infertile. And Rabbi Hillel allowed a man to divorce his wife for preparing a bad meal. Although they give the impression of being serious about obeying God, the Pharisees would pick and choose which bits of God's word they took seriously. And here Jesus highlights that by pointing to the seriousness of divorce. It's worth pointing out that this one verse isn't all Jesus had to say about divorce. On a previous occasion, I've tried to pull together what the Bible as a whole says about divorce. But here in Luke 16, divorce is being used as an example in passing. It's an example of the Pharisees' rebellion against God's word. They didn't take God's will about divorce seriously, as they didn't take it seriously in a whole lot of other cases. And all this points to a kind of rebellion that you and I can fall into. The rebellion of selective hearing when it comes to God's word. Hearing the bits we like, or the bits we find easy to obey, but being conveniently deaf to the bits we don't like the bits we find hard to obey. Remember what got the Pharisees sneering at Jesus in the first place. 
It was his teaching that our wealth is to be used to do good. Not to maximize our own comfort and security in this life. The Pharisees wouldn't listen to God's word on this. And Jesus goes on to tell a story about a man who made the very same mistake. In verses 19 to 31, he tells the story of the man who didn't listen. This story is about a rich man who was not smart in how he used his wealth. He wasted his wealth because he didn't listen to God. And even though the poor man in this story is the one who's given a name, this story isn't really about the poor man. Look at verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. One commentator points out that in just three lines, we get a brief yet brilliant picture of a self-indulgent rich man who cares for no one but himself. Purple dye was extremely expensive, and so purple clothes were a pretty obvious sign of wealth. Fine linen was worn under the purple robes. And one writer says this man not only had expensive outer robes, but in case anyone was interested, he also wore fine quality underwear. Nothing but the best for this rich man. The NIV says he lived in luxury every day. A better translation might be he feasted sumptuously every day. That brings out the connection with all Jesus' talk about feasting in recent chapters. Jesus has been teaching about a future feast in God's kingdom. This rich man spent his life on earth feasting. Verse 20 introduces another character. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, And longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Again, we're given a clear picture in just a few lines. While the rich man is inside his house feasting in his designer gear, there's a very different scene outside the rich man's house. The poor man has been laid at the rich man's gate. Apparently he's either crippled or he's too sick to walk. His friends or his family have carried him here. And they've laid him at this particular spot because they know the rich man has the resources to help. And notice the poor man isn't even hoping the rich man will do something sacrificial. He's hoping for what fell from the rich man's table. The scraps. The waste that's going to get thrown out anyway. But the implication is that the, rich, the poor man never got a crumb. The scraps went to the wild dogs, who then came and licked the poor man's sores. It's not clear if that was a comfort to the poor man or if it was just more humiliation for him. I suspect it just adds to the picture of how helpless he was. He couldn't even stop the wild dogs from licking him. In all of Jesus' parables, this is the only character who's ever given a name. Lazarus. 
It's highly unlikely Jesus was thinking of his own friend, Lazarus, the brother of Martha uh, Martha and Mary. That Lazarus came from a reasonably well-off family. Now, it seems that Jesus has given this character the name Lazarus because of what Lazarus means. The name means God helps. But calling the poor man God helps is in direct contradiction to this whole picture. The rich man is covered in designer clothes. The poor man is covered in sores. The rich man feasts like a king. The poor man doesn't even get the scrapings from his plate. How does it make sense to call the poor man God helps? The name only makes sense if we read on. Verse 22. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. On the other side of death, the situation is entirely reversed. Receiving a burial was a sign of honor and status. The rich man gets a burial. Apparently Lazarus doesn't. But that's where the rich man's honor and status end. Lazarus has been anonymous on earth but he's given an angelic escort up to heaven while the rich man goes to hell. The NIV says the angels carried the poor man to Abraham's side. Older translations talked about Abraham's bosom. The meaning of the term seems to be that Lazarus is given an honored place at God's banquet. He's at the banquet Jesus has been talking about for the last few chapters. People didn't sit at parties back then. They reclined on their side around a table. And Lazarus is reclining next to Abraham. That's why the older translation said Abraham's bosom. If Lazarus leaned back at the table, he would be leaning his head on Abraham's chest. And for a Jew... The place next to Abraham was the honored place. Abraham was the father of the nation. Now we see why Jesus called the poor man God helps. The name didn't seem to fit him on earth, but it's perfect now. On earth he was carried to lie outside the rich man's door, longing for scraps. Now he's been carried to the most important feast of all, And he's inside the feast. He's an honored guest chatting with Father Abraham. And now the rich man is outside the feast, longing for the scraps. Look at what he says in verse 24. Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. It's important to remember Jesus is telling a story here. This is a parable. We're not to take this as a record of an actual event. We're not to assume every detail is intended to give us an accurate picture of the afterlife. For example, I don't think Jesus is teaching 
that people in hell can have conversations with people in heaven. In fact, Jesus is showing the separation between those in heaven and hell. On earth, the rich man could have helped Lazarus. But in eternity, the rich man cannot receive help himself. Look down to what Abraham says in verse 26. Between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. When this life is over, we reap what we've sown in this life. And there is no more opportunity for repentance. And if we think that's harsh, notice that even in hell, the rich man is not repenting. He wants some water to cool him down, but he's not repenting. Back in verse 24, he showed that he knows Lazarus by name. He didn't ignore him down on earth out of ignorance. He knew all about Lazarus. He chose not to help him. But now, there's no acknowledgement of his negligence. In fact, he still assumes that Lazarus is inferior. He assumes Lazarus should be at his beck and call. Father Abraham, send that beggar over here to serve me. The rich man's heart is unchanged. Never mind that it's too late to repent. He is not trying to repent. The final book of the Bible assures us that's how it will be with those in hell. They don't like where they are, but Revelation tells us they will refuse to repent. We might wonder what verse 25 means. Abraham says to the rich man, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Is Abraham saying that the rich man is in hell just because he was rich on earth? Is he saying Lazarus is in heaven just because he was poor on earth? In fact, the rich man is not in hell because he received good things. He's in hell because of what he did with those good things. Remember, this whole passage flows out of what Jesus said earlier in the chapter. Back in verse 9, Jesus gave this command. Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Jesus called men and women to use their wealth with eternity in mind. After all, all of it belongs to God. It's been given to us to be used for God. Those who treat their money like it's their own show that God is not their master. Money is. And this rich man is an example of what happens to that kind of person. They feast on earth, but they starve for eternity. So again, the rich man didn't go to hell because he was rich. He went to hell because his heart belonged to money not to God. 
The way he used his money just showed which master he was serving. And back in verse 13, Jesus said, if you serve money, you hate God. I've called this the story of the man who didn't listen. And the final verses of the story show us why. After Abraham tells the rich man there's no hope for him, the rich man turns his attention to his family who are still alive. Look at verse 27. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. Jesus said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. The rich man wants his brothers to get a spectacular sign. He seems to think that kind of sign would shock them into being generous. But Abraham says, let them listen to Moses and the prophets. That's another way of talking about the law and the prophets, the Old Testament. If they would just listen to the Bible, Abraham says, they won't end up where you are. Earlier we looked at some examples of the Old Testament's teaching on wealth. Words from God making clear that his people, those who belong to him, will be generous with what he gives them. Now we know why this is the story of the man who didn't listen. If the rich man had listened to God while he was on earth, he would have been confronted with his sin. He would have had opportunity to repent of his sin and give his heart to God. We're to suppose that this rich man is a Jew. He would have been well drilled in the contents of God's word. But he didn't listen. He didn't heed what God's word said. And he doesn't believe his brothers are going to listen either. When Abraham mentions God's written word, the man replies in verse 30, No, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. They need something spectacular. And that's a very common idea today as well both outside and inside the church. A book written thousands of years ago isn't going to work today, is it? Spending our time listening carefully to it isn't going to work. We need something better that's going to grab people's attention. If, as Christians, we're tempted to think that, then we ought to ask ourselves, did God make a mistake when he chose to communicate via a 1,400-page book? Did he choose the wrong media format? Didn't he know that people in 2011 aren't going to be into books? Luke 16 tells us the problem is not God's method of communication. The problem is the human heart. Back in chapter 11, Jesus performed a miraculous healing. And immediately, some of the crowd said to him, show us a sign from heaven. The point is, 
when men and women have hard hearts, no amount of spectacular miracles are going to change their minds. No amount of fireworks and bells and whistles will change their minds. But for those whose hearts are soft towards God, his written word will be enough. The rich man ignored God's word in his lifetime. And he knows his brothers are doing the same. Ignoring God's word is not a modern problem. But Abraham answered in verse 31, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. If we are eager to love and serve God, we will pay attention to his word. If we're committed to some other God, money or popularity or whatever else, then no amount of spectacular special effects is going to get our attention. The problem is the human heart, not God's method of communicating. And the challenge for you and me this morning is very similar to the challenge last week. God's word is clear. The way we use what God gives us shows whether or not our heart belongs to God. You and I have God's word, Old Testament and New Testament. The question is, are we going to listen to it? We can say all the right things, but the way we use our wealth and possessions shows where our heart is. That's the challenge of this passage. Our reading earlier from the book of James gave us the same challenge. The problem with this challenge, especially when we hear it two weeks in a row, is that we become discouraged. We feel guilty. Maybe we feel a bit irritated with Jesus or with me for hammering on so much about wealth. So the end result is no difference in our lives at all. Last week I said that I can't answer all the personal application questions for you on this. But I can give one suggestion. In response to God's word, why not each of us look honestly at what we already do to share and give? I have no doubt we're all doing something. Let's review what we already do And then let's ask ourselves, are there ways I can do a little bit more? Are there one or two simple ways I could cut down on my spending here or there in order to be able to give and share a little bit more? Even a small step forward for each of us is massively better than feeling irritated or guilty for the afternoon and then just forgetting all about it. And maybe some of us will do this and will say, really, honestly, I am doing all I can. Then we can ask God to bless us with the resources and the opportunities to do a little bit more. The practical details of our generosity are important. But there's something even more important. That's the condition of our hearts. Guilt is not a very good motivator. Love for God is a wonderful motivator. 
the more you and I are taken up with his generosity to us, the more we'll respond in willing generosity to others. And the more we focus on God's love, the more we'll realize that Jesus became Lazarus for us. He didn't start out poor, but he came and lived on earth as a poor outcast. He died rejected and despised. He didn't even have a grave of his own. He died outside the gate of the city of Jerusalem. Lazarus means God helps. But when Jesus was sentenced to death, God did not come to help him. He let his son die. And by allowing his son to die, God the Father gave us the greatest help of all. He paid the debt of our sin. And then Jesus did what the Lazarus in this story did not do. He came back from the dead. And he brought the promise that if our hearts belong to him, then we will live to feast with him forever. The more we understand the eternal wealth that we have in Jesus, the more we'll be able to pour out our worldly wealth for Jesus. So let's ask him this morning to increase our love for him so that that love will spill out to others. Our final song says, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Let's stand as we sing, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross.